Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Rediscovering why do we exist as a church, and why do we plant churches, why do we do ministry like this? Why do we spend the effort? Why do we go through this pain to get this group of people together that actually don't know one another, that actually don't have a lot in common with one another, to have this new expression? Why don't we just go to the existing churches? Why do we keep on wanting to spread and move further out, invite more people in? And, and it's been a good wrestle for me asking questions of why we do things in a particular way and what's the goal. Because as you guys would know, in the normal throng of life, as you start just wanting to make things work, it's so easy to get distracted from where you initially wanted to go. So easy to think through, well, what should we do as Red Door Church? Should we just come to a place where we feel comfortable on a Sunday? We've got enough people, no matter what Sunday it is. We've got enough people to help and serve so that it's going to be easy and, and we feel like a real church and we feel like we've got this purpose for existence or why are we here and it's interesting how the lord's prayer is just giving us or refocusing us for what this is all about and so my prayer this morning even family is is that we would continue to rediscover this and it's not just for us as a church or our ministry your personal ministries but definitely for your own relationship with god that we would rediscover why it is that we've come to God in the first place. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, this is what we ask for this morning. We want to refocus and we want to see you. So easily we are distracted by just the troubles that are around us and they are so very real. If we look at the brokenness of the world, if we look at the brokenness of our relationships, if we look at the brokenness within ourselves, we, we cannot but be despondent, almost feel hopeless. And yet, we do hold and we do believe that there is a God and this God is good, this God is glorious, this God is great, and this God is full of grace. But even in that, we twist it somehow to be about us and our own agendas. And so we pray this morning, even as we brought in all of our baggage of the week, Father, that we would deal and do business with you and see you for who you truly are. And we know that this is a process. But we do pray that you would start this process now in our hearts as we come to you. Amen. What is undeniable, family, and what most psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors would agree on is that human beings are made for love and to love one another. It's interesting, they've done studies to see that even unborn children can feel rejection within the womb and the effect that it has on them growing up. 
we've got this innate desire to be accepted and to be loved and to be looked after. And many of us can attest that we very clearly know and have experienced where we haven't received that love in the past. Um, I don't know what your experience is growing up, but here's the interesting part. No matter how good your parents are, you had a specific desire to receive love in a specific way. And no matter how hard they tried, in some way or another, they would have failed you. <laughs> in some way or another, they would have given love in a way that you didn't want to receive or in a way that you didn't want or, or didn't expect. And so you would have some hurt growing up. And this is true of everyone, no matter who you are. And, and the reason for that is quite simple. It's just because we saw different people, and so the way that I expressed love or give love is not necessarily the way that you wanted to receive it. Even as small babies, we grow up wanting love in a particular way, and we don't get it in that particular way. And so we either get hurt or we learn something about what I should do to get love from my family or from the people around me. And so we, we create these coping mechanisms to actually receive love. And so many of us do it through trying to be overachievers, or we try to achieve well, because I learned growing up that that's actually when I receive love. Many of us try this by just not trying to do the wrong thing, because I don't want to receive the punishment that comes from that. So we become that. Or many of us actually rebel against the love, and we become rebellious at heart because we somehow then find acceptance in the world out there. And so we develop these coping mechanisms that our heart learned very early on where and how we can receive love and acceptance. And this is true of everyone. And what's interesting then is when you go into a new relationship as you're growing up or as you get older or when you in whatever relationship, whether it's a friendship relationship, a romantic relationship, but especially in a marriage union, you suddenly realize that the weird coping mechanisms that you've developed in wanting and receiving love is actually sabotaging the relationship. Um, because suddenly you, you, you just want to get it from this person, but you've always felt insecure about the way that you look or feel or this, and so you try the coping mechanism, but it's causing strife between you and your partner because you're actually communicating that you don't trust them to fully love you. And so you still find that acceptance from other people. That's why social media is so important. We, in a way, find acceptance from the world out there. We want to post things. We want people to like it. It's actually quite obvious how desperate we are for our craving for need and approval. Or we find it through posting our accomplishments. Or we find it through the way that we physically look. But when you go into a relationship, what you need to do is almost unlearn those coping mechanisms and you need to trust the other person that they would actually love you the way that you are. And this is extremely difficult and it takes a long time. And that's why we actually have things like marriage counseling, marriage preparation, marriage enrichment courses to help us once again discover how we can trust one another and how we can allow one another to love each other well. And in fact, this isn't just true of romantic or friendship relationships. This is true of every sphere of life, especially as we come to God as well. What we often don't realize is that the relationship that we have with God is very much dependent on the way that we understand love and acceptance. And the way that you view love, that you view being accepted, we automatically transpose or we, we project onto the God. 
And we spoke about this last week. And the way that you view God the Father is the way that you actually view the things that you need to do to earn God's love and acceptance and to be able to come to that. And the way that you view this relationship will ultimately make or, or it will determine the way that you pray and communicate with God and it will influence the way that you think what is the goal of Christianity what is the goal to be in relationship with God we call this almost the son-slave paradigm many of us no no that's not true all of us grow up with the slave paradigm thinking that we need to earn God's love and acceptance because we haven't received it perfectly in the past, we know that there's something that we need to bring to the table to now get the love of God. And this is a slave mentality. This is a mentality that says, well, automatically it isn't granted to you because you're in the house. You need to prove, or you need to earn, or you need to stay away from. And so that's how we approach Christianity. Christianity becomes this new system of where I can get love and, a, and approval. In, in the past, when I wasn't a Christian, I got it in other places. I got it from my working environment. I got it from living a promiscuous life. I got it from chasing money. I got it from these things. But now I've got Christianity. And so I'm saved. I'm getting it from God. But even there, because our hearts aren't fixed, we still bring that same system into the way that we view God. And so what do we do? We just try to do the right things. I try to live a moral life. I try to do the things that I think other Christians expect from me. I try to earn God's love and favor. I try to know enough about God. And slowly but surely, that mentality then seeps into the way, not only in how I view God, but how I view every sphere of Christian life. And the problem with that is that it robs you of joy. The problem of that is it becomes a chore. It's not a sustainable relationship. At some time or another, what will happen if we continue in the slave mentality of how we view God, what will happen is you will run out of steam. You'll become disillusioned with Christianity and what this relationship with, thing, with God is all about. Paul actually calls people living with a slave mentality those who are pitied amongst all of people on earth. Why? Well, you're actually not getting the joy part of Christianity and you're not getting the fun part of just living for yourself in this world. <laughs> it's the most terrible place to be in. To be a Christian, yet not to see God or have God as your father. And so either you're going to fall away your heart's going to grow cold, or there will be secret sin brewing in your life where you find an outlet where you try to find this affirmation and love that your heart is deeply craving for. And the only antidote that we have is to once again realize that this is actually not the God of Christianity. Not the God that you've maybe been taught of in systems or inherently just being shown, well, we're saying that it's about the gospel and about the cross, but actually you just need to perform to get God. Well, this is actually not the real God of the Bible. And so slowly but surely we need to remind one another and we need to once again proclaim the gospel of sonship and daughtership. That once you are accepted and loved by the Father because of Jesus that you now have freedom and liberty, that there is grace and peace between you and God. And this son-slave paradigm 
It's not as clear as black and white. You can't just look at your life and say, now I'm operating as a slave and now I'm operating as a daughter of God. It's very subtle in the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view God or the way that we view one another. And so we constantly need to come back and ask this question, in what way am I relating to God? What is the fruit of my life? Am I constantly just expecting the people around me to do better because I want myself to do better? How much grace do I have for myself? How much grace am I giving to the people around me? Because you can only give as much as in the way that you're receiving it from God yourself. In what way am I being characterized as a loving person that, that desperately just wants to love the people themselves because I'm saturated with love from God? In what way am I being constantly thankful for who and what God is? In what way is my journey with God being characterized by joy? These are the fruits that we want to look at. And if you, if you see a pattern, and I'm not talking about seasons where things are tough and it's just down in the trenches and you want to love God, but emotionally you're not there right now. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying if you're seeing a pattern where these fruits are always absent from your life, then you have to ask the question, who and what am I worshiping? I'm saying it's God of the Bible, but is it really? Or is it a pseudo-God that we created? Just so that we can feel better about ourselves. Because then Sigmund Freud was right in saying that religion is actually just a crutch that people created to feel better about themselves. And you know what? With any other religion, I would actually agree with him. That we created the system just to adhere to so that we can feel better about ourselves. But this isn't the God of the Bible. And how do we know this? Well, family, that's why we come to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, when approached by the disciples, asking him, Lord, show us how to pray. What is the template? What is the theology that goes on in your mind, Jesus, as you relating to God the Father? In what way should we pray so that I can have that kind of prayer life? Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. And so, yes, we reiterate the words of the Lord's Prayer, but it's more than that. It is a theological way in which we relate to God. And that's why last week was such a great start. How does Jesus start? He says, our Father. He describes the depth and the quality of the relationship that we are invited into. And more than that, it's a collective. It's not just my dad, it's our dad. We come collectively to God, so we worship together. He wants to speak to all of us. He wants to father all of us. And he wants us to know that we can come to him, and it's more than just Mr. Sir, Father. It is Daddy. We had a, this isn't in the notes, but we had a Zoom call in our DNA group the other day. I'm sure you won't mind me sharing this. Uh, Hendrik Willem, he was uh, with us on the call. It was in the morning before work and everyone's getting ready for stuff. And uh, in the middle of the call, his kids just come running in because they want to go greet their dad before they go to school. And they come, they don't care with who he is on on the call whether it's a business meeting or whatever, they just come into the room, burst open, have the liberty to come and jump on his lap and grab him by the neck. And that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to with God the Father. There's no appointment to be made. We are invited to come to him and rediscover this trust relationship that we can similarly open up the door and just come to our dad and throw our arms right around his neck. So this is how Jesus starts the prayer. 
And then for today's passage, well, two phrases that we're going to look at. When Jesus says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. He goes into the next step, which is so important for our hearts. Most people in most religions, myself included, do not start a prayer like this. Where do we start a prayer? Where do we start and end our prayers? Well, if I'm honest, I started with myself. (laughs) Father, I need this. Father, supply this. Father, help me. Pray for even for that person. Help them. And so we start and end our prayers normally with other people or with ourselves. What Jesus is inviting us with is realizing that we've in some way or another almost idolized our own need for acceptance and our own desires. What we need to recognize this morning is the thing that our hearts needs the most is not to have our desires fulfilled right now. But we need our hearts to be reoriented in who and what we need, which is God himself. And so Jesus corrects our theology. The way and the place where we start our prayer is one, understanding the quality of a relationship, our Father, and then placing the focus on the right place, on God. And so two things that we'll see in this, what it means when it says that God is in heaven and that his name is to be hallowed. I want to say, let's jump into the text, but that that is the text right there. So (laughs) we're going to see what this means for us after the quality of relationship, these descriptors, and what will be interesting to see how these two phrases work together. From there on, the the, the prayer changes a little bit in um, what we want to see happen in this world and how we fit into God's plan. But these two phrases, God who is in heaven and his name that is to be hallowed, is actually the dynamo, the generator that actually keeps our love for God going. In times of uh, darkness and load shedding, it's great to know that there are power stations that never actually go out of power. And this is it. If, if the first part is getting us connected with God our Father, today's passage is the power station that actually powers our relationship with God. And so if we don't have this, family, if we don't have this in our church and in your relationships with one another, then we actually won't make it. Then we'll run out of power. And so Jesus is inviting us to get plugged into the generator of God's love. Otherwise, our prayer lives will be lackluster and mundane, similar to just the normal things that we try to repeat every day. So let's start. When we talk about God who is in heaven, we often get confused with the Greek mythology and the way that they thought about these things. They viewed God in heaven as a location, as a locality. And for them, it meant that heaven was far removed from earth. And so God was somewhere in heaven in paradise, chilling by a stream where the rest of us was here on earth. But that's actually not what is being communicated in God of the Bible. The rest of us, we see a separation between heaven and earth. And that is right. There is a separation between what's going on right now and where God is. But it's much less about the locality of where God is and rather the position that he's taken in. 
When we talk about, or at least when the Bible talks about God who is in heaven, it talks about the position that God takes in. And that position is one of ruler, authoritative God, set above all creation. And so when we think about God who is in heaven, we should picture the one similarly as what John saw in Revelation when he was taken up into the heaven. We should think about the one who sits on the throne, who is above all authorities, above all principalities and powers. You have the God of heavens and all creation ruling and looking down on his creation. Even as 2 Chronicles 6.18 describes it in this way, but will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened day and night towards this house the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And so what we see in this passage and what is quite clear is that it's clear that nothing can contain God. And so not even the heavens is the locality or the place for God's dwelling. Yet, he is bigger than any category that we can give him. But in that, God still hears us and he's able to answer the prayers of his people. But we should realize that we don't just want to acknowledge this fact. Oh, God is in heaven. God is the one ruling above all principalities and powers. We very quickly read that phrase and we acknowledge and we would actually nod the head with one another and saying this isn't new information. Yes, in our faith we believe that God is the one who rules above all. But then the next step for us is, before we move on, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that God is the one above all principalities, rules and power? How can we dwell upon this verse first? J.I. Packer puts it this way. Knowledge of God's greatness, of where he is, should both humble us and move us to worship. The moment we, we hear who God is and where he is and what he is doing, it should increase our joy and wonder and sense of privilege that we are able to worship a God like this, and yet we are able to call him Father. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 6. He says, He or God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Or listen to the words in Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. 
I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. Verse 10, very important. After we've beheld the Lord. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who could go down to the sea and all that fills it the coastlands and all their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages and the Kedah inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout out from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and to declare his praise in the coastlands. What's interesting to read from, the message, uh, from these passages, the more we discover who God is, what his nature is, what his character is, what he's already done, what it should do, the effect that it should do on the person who's learning about this, who's beholding God, is that our response should be one of worship and praise. The moment you truly see God for who he is, we cannot but praise him. We cannot but give glory and honor where glory and honor is due, simply because he deserves it. But, but how often do we, in our prayers, even acknowledge that, but even before we have a chance to dwell in that fact, we move on to the rest of the real meat of the prayer where we actually want to get to. My mini kingdom that God should look after. This is so important to have the right perspective and clarity of who this God is that we're worshiping. And it's actually not, we don't want to create a system where we're simply worshiping ourselves and to feel better about ourselves for the religious or theological tick boxes that we were able to do this week. We need to see God. Why? Because God is the only one who is able and willing to save us and to look after us. How pitiful would it have been to serve a God who is willing to save us, he's our father, but he's not able to, he's not in heaven. Or, or how sad would it have been if God was in heaven so he's able to save us and he's not willing, he's not our father. And so what we're seeing in the beginning of this prayer is we're seeing who God is. Not only is he the one who is in charge, he is great, great and glorious, but he's also good and that he's a father. And so we're establishing the relationship with him and we're seeing what he is able to do in all creation, but more specifically even in my own heart. So the more we learn about God, the more we realize that he deserves our praise and the more we are moved to praise. And the more we start praising God and discovering more about him, the more we are moved from praising him and worshiping him to having a heart that is deeply thankful for who God is. Not only thankful for the way that God created everything, not only thankful for every good gift that he gives in this life, but a God that out of his nature and goodness also gave us redemption. 
even though we have nothing that we can give him. Even though there is nothing that we can do for God to owe us. Even though there's no gift that is worthy enough that we can bring before him. Yet, in spite of all of this, God decided to reach out to us. How good and great is this God? And it is in this family when we start praising God worshiping, doting upon God's goodness, enjoying Him for who He is, tasting that goodness, it's then that we start hallowing His name. The phrase, hallowed be your name, means that we want to keep God's name sacred. That, that we have this deep desire to see that the glory and honor that is due to God would go to him, that he would receive it, because he should get all of that. It is a deep desire in our hearts that we say God is holy, and holy means separate from everything else, and that is God. He can't be compared with anything else in creation, and so we want to recognize this, and constantly we want his name to be kept holy. As the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not us, O Lord, not to us, but your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This is then the desire of the Christian's heart. We have this deep desire to have God's name glorified. And not because if we don't glorify God, and if we don't give him the honor that's due, that he will somehow be less God. That's again Greek mythology. It's interesting. The Greeks believed that the gods were dependent on people's prayers and the amount of praise that they got. The more praise they got, the stronger God was. This is not our God. He will always be enthroned in glory and power and honor. But in graciousness, he's allowing us to partake in that by being able to praise him and give him glory. It's not only because he deserves it, this is actually the privilege where we are invited into. So family, hallowing God's name starts with an attitude of gratitude. For the goodness of who God is, the goodness of what God has done. And I wonder what we think, when is God's name dishonored? When are those times when God's name isn't hallowed, that we as Christians should be concerned about. And yes, there's definite ways in which people don't recognize God as God and don't give him the necessary glory. There's ways in which unbelieving people still dishonor very directly and blaspheme against the name of God. But I don't actually think that this is more what this passage is talking about. This is not where the hallowing or not hallowing of God's name is happening. Rather, God's name is dishonored when his children live in fear. As though God has lost control. The moment God's people live in fear, they're either communicating that he's not really a good father and so they expect punishment from him or they don't really believe that he is in heaven so he's lost control of his creation. Us living in fear more than anything else is communicating to the rest of the world that this isn't a God that is worthy to be worshipped. Rather look for something else. <coughs> Get a backup plan. Get that Alan Gray investment going. 
I'm not saying those things are bad. But rather, are we trusting in that to take our fear away, to give us the comfort that we deeply long for? Hallowing God's name starts with children that are deeply thankful and in love with their dad. And this is a big statement. I'm definitely not saying that there's no times that the children and we don't get anxious, that we are not fearful of what happening is happening in this world, that times aren't dark, but rather the question is, is your life as a Christian characterized more by fear than by love and grace and acceptance? And if that is the same as the beginning, then we are serving the wrong God or we are honoring the wrong God. You are disavowing the first two statements about who God is, that he is great and in heaven. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 111, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And we talk about fear. It's not as if I don't want to get close or I don't want to talk with God. It's this fear. It's the reverent respect and awe of understanding that I don't even fully comprehend who this God is. But when we fear God in this way and live in awe of God, nothing else can come close to that fear. And so I fear nothing else in this realm. You either have a greater fear of God or greater fear of the people or the things around us. It can't be both. We believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's a single statement. It's not two statements. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Meaning that part of our glorification process of God is by enjoying God is having that joy fill your heart of who he is and what he's done for you. And so back to Packer, he says that the Christian life is no joy ride. Don't get me wrong. However, it should be a joyous road. The Christian life is no joy ride, but it should be a joyous road. Christian, are you enjoying God? Is your life marked by thankfulness for a God and for what he's done? Or have you been hijacked by some quasi-form of Christianity where you need to either just fulfill your duty, do what is required to get your bus ticket to heaven? We, we might even, as Red Door, have fallen into this trap where we feel so pressured just to make things happen every week, every Sunday, every missional community, every DNA group. Can we just keep the weekly rhythms and the events going and somehow picture and think this is what God is about or this is what he wants for us as a church rather than us extolling his name and being excited to share with one another, look what the Lord has done once again. Look how good he is. And it becomes effort. Because I'm replacing the great God with my mini idol of just trying to appease or feel better about myself. We're always going to be in this pendulum, but family, we have to come back. 
we have to come back and we have to remind one another to come back and to enjoy once again what is the initial thing that we will call to to this religion, to this way of viewing God. Otherwise, we know better than any other worldview out there. The fundamental difference between Christianity and everything out there is that we are loved and accepted by unmerited grace. Nowhere else can you find this. And nowhere else is this true and able to find truth because of Jesus. If we live out of obligation, then God is not your father but your slave master. And so what are we inviting people to? Do we simply want to be a church on mission because that's our job? Let's get the numbers going. Let's get more people to join our club so that we can show that our club is growing more than the other religions club. Or are we out of this communion of dining and feasting with God, enjoying Him so much that we almost cannot contain ourselves? We have to share this. How good it is to share this God or love this God. How good it is when I feel the weight of expectations on my shoulders and I've got to deal with the guilt in my life knowing that I don't measure up, knowing that I've messed up with the people around me, that I can run to the Father who will accept me, who will change me, who will commission me, who will still use me irrespective of what I've done. Wow, what, what peace is that? Are we simply inviting people to, this is a great place to be and you can find community and and you can talk about stuff and we share food and that's all great. But what is the fundamental thing that we want to invite people to? It has to be the quality of the relationship. And so where do we start? If, If you recognize this morning that somehow in your heart you've switched over, not unbecoming a Christian or or not reverting back to not being a Christian, but in your heart you've moved back into a slave mentality and not into one of sonship. Where do we then start this morning as we want to pray this prayer? Well, once again, come and just sit with your dad's feet. Listen to the stories of what he's done for you. Listen once again to the great story that he tells you about how he came and saved you. Listen and see the love that Jesus, your older brother, has for you. Think about where you are now, how you got here, the good things, and the way that he's blessed you, and the way that he's been kind and gracious to you, even though you didn't accept this. Just hear again how God is the Father that is able and willing to look after that. And then tell it to him. Remind God how good he has been to you. Share of God the stories of what he's done. And even in that process of communication, of listening and reading of what he's done and telling him again of what he's done to you, allow your heart to be warm to this fact. And this is what prayer is and doting upon his name. This is what the Psalms are doing. They're just writing to God of how good he is and then telling one another of how good he is. And these stories just keep on repeating and being sung to one another. And enjoy him for that. Laws will never be able to do that. Needing to tick all the right boxes will never be able to warm our hearts in this way. It's only when we get the generator starter of seeing God, appreciating him, 
experiencing the love and now I'm hallowing him because I'm enjoying him in every part of my life. And the more that I'm hallowing his name, the closer I'm getting to him, the more I once again see his grace and what he's done, the more I'm enjoying that fact and the more I'm enjoying that, the more I get deeper into his heart. It's this process keeping on repeating it itself, drawing us closer to him. So even before we get to everything else, how long and how many times are we spending in prayer where we're just allowing that power station to power our hearts? And don't get me wrong. God is so much more than just our emotional experiences of Him. In fact, because of His greatness, He actually oftentimes allows seasons of dryness and drought emotionally in our lives to even show us that he is so much more than just our emotional experience of him. There will be times where I just don't feel as excited or happy about who God is and what he's done in my life. But in those seasons, I'm learning how to trust him in joy and then what's interesting is as I come out of that season, I've got a new appreciation of who God is and where he leads me. As Israel goes through the desert on the way to the promised land, we oftentimes go through seasons of drought. And God shows us that to show us that his faithfulness is not dependent on solely my emotional reaction to him. He is even greater than my doubt and my lack of excitement sometimes. This is our great God. So family, let's talk about prayer or let's talk about anxiety. Later in the prayer, we will see that God very much also cares about your unique situation, that God actually very much cares about the things that you need and your provision and your safety and the things and the challenges that really are present in your life. God is deeply aware of who you are and what you need. However, we want God to be God because only if God is God, He can actually do something about that. And so that's why even before we get in our prayer to all our anxieties and wants and needs and desires, we want to give the praise and honor where it's rightly due. Because ultimately what will happen, it's only once we do that that our hearts start believing it and that we start trusting in the relationship. And it's only when we trust that we can start asking. Why? Because then when I've asked... I believe that God is actually in control. And it's then in my, making my requests known to God that I can experience the peace of God. We oftentimes, we just want to bring our desires to God so that I can now have peace on the things that I've prayed for, that I've made known to God, without even establishing the trust that we need in God. And so family, not just this morning, but let's, Go into a time now where I'll say amen and we ask for that. Do you know that God isn't scared of your doubt? That God isn't scared of your questions? We are scared of asking God to reveal himself to us because we're scared he won't come through and then what will that communicate about the God that we're serving? God isn't scared of it. Right now,
Let's pray. Let's, let's ask that God would reveal himself to us. That we would be able to see him more clearly for who he is and what he's done and what he will do. So I'm going to give a moment for silent prayer that we just go into the space. See who God is. Listen to his love. Hear the message of the cross. Jesus who came, who died when you don't deserve it. See him clearly there. See God on the throne, the one who is able and willing to save. And allow that to warm your heart. Let's do that now. Amen.